So the carpet industry says there's about 2 million tons of carpet thrown away each year in the U.S. And so because carpet is plastic, 70% plastic, that means there's 1.4 million tons of plastic thrown away every year because of carpet. That's more plastic than all the plastic straws, all the plastic water bottles, and all the plastic bags combined that the U.S. throws out every year. Welcome to Buzz House, a Baker Tilly podcast where you can hear all the buzz around multifamily housing with all the info you need to help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Hi, I'm Don Bernards, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing practice. And I'm Gary Gibson, a partner at Baker Tilly, also specializing in consulting on multifamily housing transactions across the country. Let's get started. On the Buzz House, since the Inflation Reduction Act came out in the fall of 2022, Garrick and I have had a lot of discussion around energy efficiency, clean energy, climate resilience. I had the pleasure to meet our guests today while we both sat on a panel at the Minnesota Housing Summit back in May of this year, and the panel is entitled Healthy Building and the Inflation Reduction Act. And I found the discussion extremely interesting and valuable and just information I probably hadn't even thought about and many uh, developers and, and people in the industry really hadn't thought a lot about. Our guest today is Gina Saganik, the Chief Executive Officer of Healthy Building Network, an organization that helps to define the leading edge of healthy building practices that increase transparency in the building products industry and to reduce human exposures to hazardous chemicals. I like a quote on the website that I found from Florence Nightingale. I was looking around the website. The quote, the connection between health and dwelling of the population is one of the most important that exists. We're very excited to jump into our discussion with Gina. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Garrick. Garrick? Thanks, Don. And Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you. To begin, before we get into questions, would you please tell us and our listeners a little bit about your professional background and your organization? Sure. Don gave a pretty good quick background, but like he said, we conduct research and provide education and guidance for selecting products that are healthier for people and the planet. We're a nonprofit that was founded in 2000 and have a team of researchers, material scientists, toxicologists, building experts, and software engineers. We work with large companies like Google and architectural firms like Perkins and Wills, Home Depot, and other multinational companies. We work with universities like Harvard and Howard University, Parsons School of Design, and we work with mid-level and smaller architectural firms and developers, including affordable housing developers. We advise and support all the major green building standards and material platforms. We support organizations working on policy efforts. We know about chemicals and we know about building products and how they impact our health and the health of the planet. I didn't come from this background, however. I've been at HBN for about eight years. I'm a real estate developer. I was a real estate developer for about 20 years developing affordable housing, and I became really interested in how these amazing projects we were building were really damaging to the earth. And I realized that with the various sustainability standards, we could do better if we thought about it. Now, as much as I was creating home for sometimes families who were homeless or people working very low-income jobs, which was a really good thing, on the other hand, there were a lot of practices that we do in the built environment from energy, water conservation, all of those typical things that we hear about. 
that are causing big problems because the real estate sector, as we know, is tremendous and it carries a big energy burden and it carries other kinds of burdens with it. So I began working on all the different kinds of building standards to do better as I was doing better. I stumbled upon um, the Living Building Challenge, which is one of the most progressive, aggressive building standards out there. And this is coming from someone who has achieved lead platinum and worked on Passive House and has done a lot of things sustainability-wise. But they introduced me through their standard to the fact that materials also are causing a lot of problems, not just trying to electrify our buildings and reduce carbon. It was shocking to me how little we knew about the products in our buildings. And it sparked me to have a career change because I realized a lot of the products I was using in the building, I had no idea, might have been good for my envelope and my R value and my energy model, but they were causing, they were full of greenhouse gases, they were full of toxic chemicals, there was very little regulation, it was all written in chemistry. I didn't, I'm not a scientist. I wanted to do better, but I didn't know how to do better because it was so complex. So I changed careers. I showed up at the Healthy Building Network after they asked me to come a couple of times and I kept saying, no, I'm a developer. And I realized I could help translate this information to the folks I know, people like me, to do better. Thanks for that intro. And Gina, given the fact that you come from a development background, how are you working with developers and builders to actually find safer products for their projects? Yeah, good question. There's a couple of different ways. One, as in the intro, we said is we are influencing the different green building standards out there. So as people choose lean, as people choose living building, enterprise, we help advise those. So sometimes they don't know it. We're sort of an intel inside. We're helping just through their workflows. Sometimes people hire us. There's large firms who will hire us and different groups who will help really look at their finished schedules and the way they're approaching their process for selection. So sometimes we do it more individually. Sometimes foundations are funding us to support affordable housing and we do the same kind of a thing. Otherwise, there's a lot of people who just come to our website and kind of do it yourself. We have a lot of information and guidance there. Since I've been there, we've really translated into really simple ways you can learn and understand through a red to green ranking with, of course, green the best, red the worst. And if you can get up to at least yellow, you're doing a really amazing job. So there's several ways you can interact with us. And we're working across the country and even sometimes internationally with with different groups. Gina, next question. Obviously, maybe a simple thing, reducing toxicity to residents, obviously very important. What other factors that we want to talk about using safer products in in the building environment? That's how I started, because I was really thinking about what about the residents? I had found out in my last project called The Rose, when I was a developer, that the vinyl floors I was choosing all the time, at the time they had a chemical called phthalates, and it's spelled weird, and I never heard of the thing. But I did learn from my architect that at the time, they had already been banned in kids' toys. So a kid couldn't hold a rattle with this chemical in it because it's a 
endocrine interrupter, which means it screws up hormones and it creates other developmental problems. So they couldn't hold a rattle with this chemical in it. But I just slathered a thousand square feet of this floor with this chemical that they're crawling across every single day. How can that be? So I really started my journey really thinking about the residents. Oh my gosh, what are they touching? What are they ingesting? I didn't realize, I now say you are what surrounds you more than you are what you eat. Because we think about kids chewing on, you know, a windowsill or something. But I've learned that we're just big sponges. I mean, we know from medicines we put on us that soak in our bodies that we do soak in things. So we in, we ingest things accidentally, we through dust, through other means, we breathe it in, we absorb it when we sit on it and it touches our skin. So my original was like, how do we make it this better for the residents? And then I realized, oh gosh, what about all those workers? I remember walking in 20 years, I walked on construction sites and it's like, what's that smell? And it's adhesives and paints and it's all, all the stuff. Everyone knows when you walk into a site, you smell the smell. So then I thought, oh, workers. And then my my brain really burst when I realized, oh, there's this whole supply chain. Somebody made this somewhere and sat around these chemicals all day, day in and day out. And I learned about, I never heard the term before, but something called a fence line community. And these are communities that we often call red line in the affordable housing world because there were lots of legacy racist financing mechanisms that created segregation where certain people lived. Well, there are also on top of that, like in the South, there are a lot of petrochemical facilities, manufacturing facilities and places where people of color, low-income populations and children still disproportionately live and are disproportionately exposed and are disproportionately working in those facilities. So I never thought about the decision I was making at that building, thinking about my residents, trickled through all the way to these communities who... There's a community in Louisiana literally called Cancer Alley because the three, four mile stretch between Baton Rouge and, and the Gulf have so many petrochemical facilities and manufacturing facilities that the health of all those communities with cancer and other things are suffering, literally. The environmental justice communities actually call those sacrifice zones. So I was thinking, I'm building buildings that I'm relying on sacrifice zones to create my building here that I'm at a ribbon cutting ceremony really proud about. So I had to really educate myself about all of these things are interconnected and then they have an end of life as well. Where does that stuff go? You know, waking up from this idea that things, it's magic. Things appear, things disappear. We don't really know what it's made of, whose hands it's touched all along, where it ends up. And that to me was really eye-opening as I was getting into this work and realizing how interconnected it all is and that we have to do better understanding how this all rolls up and how it affects people. Gina, thank you very much for that. And Gina, maybe a good follow-up to that is it kind of reminds me and thinking about products that we don't even think about, right? We replace, you know, we think, hey, we're, we're replacing this. It's great for the tenant. But what really stuck to me was just one, you were telling a story about we don't even think about carpeting and the plastic and things like that. So Maybe just some materials, products we don't even think about that are just really impactful to the environment. This was one area, hanging out with scientists all the time. I've learned a lot of things and I see the world differently. So one of the things that struck me was, as I and 
everybody else is trying to electrify our buildings because we want to stop the fossil fuels. We're actually building our buildings out of plastics. I often think of that like the Barbie dream house, and that's actually what we're building out of. And we don't always call things plastic, like carpet. Carpet is about 70% plastic, and there's usually polyvinyl chloride, vinyl, PVC backing, however you want to call it. There's nylon, there's all sorts of kinds of plastic. So the carpet industry says there's about 2 million tons of carpet thrown away each year in the U.S. And so because carpet is plastic, 70% plastic, that means there's 1.4 million tons of plastic thrown away every year because of carpet. That's more plastic than all the plastic straws, all the plastic water bottles, and all the plastic bags combined that the U.S. throws out every year. And so we're all freaked out, and we've seen the turtle with the straw in its nose and the bags in the air and the ocean pictures with the plastic bottles, and we all have our metal water bottles and and reusable bags for the grocery store. And at the same time, the build environment with one product is exceeding all of that. And so when you combine that and really look at the volume of plastics used in the built environment, which is antithetical to all of the electrification we're doing, plastics are just another form of fossil fuel, it is astounding. It is astounding that we're not thinking about that. It's astounding that the fossil fuel companies have shifted as a feedstock into making these products. We call them different kinds of luxury vinyl tile. We don't think about latex paint. All of our paint is plastic. P-lam, we don't want to say plastic laminate. Plastic laminate, so much of our buildings is all plastic. And the built environment is the second highest and growing use of plastics in all the different sectors. Packaging is the first. And we're the highest use of vinyl. PVC, vinyl, we, we often call it. And so when we all were reacting to the train derailment in Ohio, in East Palestine, Ohio, that was vinyl chloride, which is a key ingredient of vinyl. So that is us. That's the built environment creating that demand. So when we're all gasping and saying, oh my gosh, how did that happen? And why did they choose to burn it and put it in the air? And what's happening to that community? That is because we are creating that demand kind of like the fence line community that I talked about. We create these things here in this country and around the globe, even though we might gasp at the idea that in your China or in, in another developing country, you know, these horrors happen. It's here in our backyard. I often thought about what if there were actual stickers that came on products that said made in Cancer Alley? Would I be okay with that landing on my job site? Our team looked at spray um, polyurethane foam insulation, SPF. Great stuff for our value, right? It's just a blow in and swells up. It's made in Cancer Alley. We know the three communities. It's in Louisiana, and then there's a place in Texas and a place in Orange, California. That's the supply chain. If you use SPF insulation, which is like the darkest red on our, our list, you are participating in the harms of all of the communities and for affordable housers, a lot of the communities that are exactly the communities that we're serving. So we have to take a step back and understand how we're participating in and how we can change that. 
Because we can. There are other good options beyond those worst-in-class products. And if we see it every day with everyone we work with, whether they're affordable housers or they're the top architectural firm, then everyone in between, there are solutions. I found solutions. Gina, maybe, you know, to that point, right, thinking about other materials, and I'm sure there's people ask you every day, hey, that's great. We love everything you're saying we believe in, but how do we find replacements? What are the costs? You know, how do you, we, this environment in our with high interest rates and limited resources, how do we, how do we try and balance this? Or what's, what's the process? Or how do you see the future in getting costs that kind of work in, in budgets, if you will? Yeah, always number one question, what's the cost? How much does it cost? And there's a few things related to that. The first I would say is, like I said, we work with all sorts of developers and architects of all sizes and everyone we've always worked with, even our affordable housers, and there's case studies on there. When we work with them and give them the knowledge to understand how to select a different and better option, sure, not every single option is going to fit in cost performance and aesthetic other criteria, but there certainly are definitely products you should pick one and move ahead. So we've always had everyone find some success. So we know it's possible within budget and within performance and aesthetic and all the other tensions that are out there. We also know that sometimes products cost more. And two things about that. One is we can work together as group because we know if we buy in bulk and we have a higher volume, that can drive down costs. So if we start working differently and start thinking about how we together get a couple of our friends to buy in more volume, reduce some of those costs. And whenever we say costs, this is the bigger part. We think about first costs. We think about kind of what it is in the budget. And you have to, if you have one dollar you probably actually have 80 things to spend because something's going to happen and you're going to need a change order. So yes, money is a real thing. But the externalized costs, the costs, there's a reason why products are cheap. We know that instinctively when we think about fast fashion and other kinds of things. Somebody is bearing the cost of their health, our planet, taxpayers when they're cleaning up spills, when we're sucking in the air because there's fires because of the climate and the planet change, there is a bigger cost. And I have seen so many developers start to rethink what their value is and be creative. We have a group out in California who's long been using linoleum, one of the top healthiest products, and sometimes it does have an upcharge to it. They were creative in the dimension of the planks that this product came in. The architect designed the unit dimensions to match the dimensions of the planks for the linoleum, and then they had less waste. What a smart thing to do. So when you think about, is there a waste reduction strategy? So I need less product. Is that a way to make change? So we see a lot of people doing creative things when they align their values with their approaches. I'm often saying nowadays, I'm kind of bored with the cost conversation because I get it. We all have budgets. We all have limitations. But that has been throughout the history of mankind and will uh, forever be a conversation. There's always going to be how and can you afford it. We're way too smart and creative to be limited by something like that. You know, there's sometimes this feeling, I can't do it all, so I'm not going to do any. Pick one or two things. Be creative and we'll get there. 
creative is a good word in describing building products. It seems to me there where there's a will, there's a way, right? What about programs, right? Because obviously this is, sounds like, you know, it's a bigger deal in terms of entire life cycle here. So do you know any programs which might even provide funding? Let's say if a developer or a contractor is going to use safe products within their projects. I found them when I was a developer. I found mi actually millions of dollars when I was working on the rows to not only support the materials part of it, but, you know, some of the other efforts that I was doing as well, because they're all interconnected and we have to look at all these things together. And oftentimes right now we're so tunnel visioned on carbon and decarbonization that we're not really understanding. We have to pick products and understanding the carbon and the toxics connection and pick the one that's optimized for both, or you're going to undermine results in the climate side. So today, sure, there are some probably foundations that would consider giving grants for that. But the thing that has to happen first is people have to make a demand for it. Because at one point there wasn't funding for carbon either. But now there's much more funding for carbon because people started to ask for it. If more and more developers and architects and people in the real estate industry said, I am trying to solve this problem, can we put some funds behind it? There will be more. We can change that. In fact, McKnight Foundation locally here in Minnesota, where I'm, I'm from, provided about $200,000 to Healthy Building Network to come in and work on a strategy for Minnesota to think about our system and the way we're building here to find a way we can co-create a roadmap going forward. So the first part of that grant provided us some resources to go and look at data from about 36 affordable housing tax credit projects that were funded between the 2019 and 20 rounds, 2020 rounds. So we have all that data now. So we understand what products are using and we're creating this baseline. And the spoiler alert is, to no surprise, it's looking pretty red. A couple of, couple of spots where we're doing okay in paint and et cetera. But soon we're all going to be confronted as we have community conversations around these results. Do we want to keep building in a manner that is creating literal health harms for people all along the supply chain? I mean, when you look at books saying, I, I don't know why we're all not freaking out the book saying that sperm counts have decreased 50% in the last 50 years because of these different chemicals that cancer rates and kids diseases and autism and all of the things that have links to all these chemicals. I don't know why we're not all just crazed about this. And so in Minnesota, we will soon be having some community conversations around this and saying, how do we work our way out of this? Where do we start? Should we start in flooring? Should we decide we are done with luxury vinyl tile and carpet and find ways to start making a difference? We know that per the UN, the United Nations, they estimate that by 2060, we will be adding 2.5 trillion square feet of buildings to the earth, which doubles everything that exists and actually excludes the day in and day out maintenance and all the sucking of materials that these buildings have. So you can look at that as super frightening. I look at it as we have a power to actually change, literally, I'd say this with science 
hanging out with scientists. We have the opportunity as a built environment sector to change the health of the planet. Because like I said, with the carpet and all those, if you think about one product by one product and the magnitudes that we can all, if we all decide we're going to start shifting our floors and we keep saying, if we can get to a place where the built environment is fundamentally using products that are in the yellow space or above, we will change the health of the planet. And so we have to all decide that we're no longer like lead. I mean, I would say if any of us were delivered a semi-load of paint that had lead in it, even if it was for free and even if we thought we couldn't get caught, who would use that? I mean, we've all kind of decided on some of these couple of chemicals we've heard about or asbestos. We We just decided we're over that. We're not doing that. We know what a problem that is. So we can decide and we can use our collective levers to move forward. And I know the money, your question, is there money for this stuff? It will follow when we need money. Otherwise, we're going to be changing the system in a way where new products will become available. Right here in our backyard, the Lower Sioux Indian community has been funded by the Department of Employment and Economic Development, DEED, to build a factory for hempcrete that could create this new opportunity for really healthy, great wall structures. Why are we not, as Minnesotans and whoever else wants to join in, backing efforts like that to innovate and be different? So the money will be there when we decide it's a priority and the creative solutions will be there when we decide it's a priority, because that's how humanity works. That's how we've solved big, hard, gnarly problems in the past. And we're going to be doing it in Minnesota here in over the next two years, thanks to McKnight Foundation. Really good information, Gina, to, to think about. And, and probably, right, like you said, information is made for all, all the people in the, in the industry to listen to. So that's it for this episode of The Buzz House. A big thanks to Gina Saganek for joining the show. Tell us all about the impacts and thoughts around using safer building materials. Once again, I'm Don Bernards. And I'm Garrett Gibson. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. For additional resources around multifamily housing, check out BakerTilly.com. If you have a suggestion for the show, email us at buildabakertilly.com. That's B-U-I-L-D at BakerTilly.com. See you next time on BuzzHouse. House.